This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, I want to put our current challenges the current difficulties we're having in defining freedom, the current threats to our freedom in context. And I want to remind people that there's been a long struggle in the English-speaking world to define our ability to be free from tyranny and at the same time to have responsible citizenship based on the votes and the voices of the people. And the person I want to use to start this conversation is John Wilkes, an Englishman who became one of the great advocates of free speech, one of the great advocates of freedom of the press, and one of the great advocates that it is the people, not the politicians, who get to pick who serves in the parliament, or in our case, in the Congress. I think it's particularly important at the present time because we're faced with the spectacle this week of politicians in Washington deciding that they have the power to say to 74 or 75 million Americans that the politicians in Washington will define for them who they are allowed to send to be president or any other job. It's an extraordinarily dangerous precedent. It's something we have never seen before in America, and it carries us right back to the world of John Wilkes and to the great dangers of his generation when the king still thought of themselves as divine right and they thought of opposition as treason, and the fight to have the right to print something, the right to say something, the right to be elected by voters without the politicians approving or disapproving, all of these things were in flux, and they were in flux 
in a period about 10 to 15 years before the Declaration of Independence, and then, say, another 10 years before the Constitutional Convention. So in studying Wilkes, we're really looking at somebody whose advocacy for freedom and whose willingness to stand up to the government would directly impress the Founding Fathers and would have a huge impact on people like Thomas Jefferson. And as a result, much of the depth of the American commitment to personal freedom, to freedom of the press, to freedom of elections, much of that can be traced back to what Wilkes went through in the 1760s. And that's why I thought it would be a very timely and very important thing to take a few minutes and let's look at a man who truly changed the course of history. The Founding Fathers were deeply shaped not just by their study of the Roman Republic or democracy in Greece or the great traditions of Judaism and Christianity, but they were very deeply shaped by being citizens of Great Britain at a time when Britain had been through enormous turmoil. There had been the Reformation in which Britain had moved from Catholicism to the Church of England. There had been continuous pressures with the Catholic Church sending priests in, and the priests, in effect, were seen by the English as traitors and undermining the authority of the system. They were also deeply affected by the fact that Scotland was a separate country with a separate tradition, and so there was a constant pressure on the established government to try to find a way to coerce people into loyalty and to root out people who might be treasonous. In addition, when James II clearly was moving to reimpose Catholicism on Britain, and they had what was called the Glorious Revolution of 1688, you had a tremendous effort because suddenly you have a Dutch aristocrat married to the daughter of James II coming into Great Britain to reestablish a Protestant state and to ensure that the traditions of the existing elites would be sustained. So out of that process, there were a number of laws passed. For example, the Licensing of the Press Act of 1662 had said, quote, an act for preventing the frequent abuses in printing seditious, treasonable, and unlicensed books and pamphlets and for regulating of printing and printing presses. In other words, the government would control whether or not you could have a printing press. The government would control what you could print. The government control whether it was a book or a pamphlet or a newspaper. And so that had been really an effort to clamp down on people who had a different attitude. However, once they'd gone through the Glorious Revolution, Parliament suddenly decided that they would not continue it. And so it was rejected by the House of Commons in 1695, which is about the time that John Locke is writing and is beginning to outline the concept that your rights may come from your creator and that they are, in fact, explicitly yours, not the government's. Again and again, people would come back and try to replace the, the bill because they, they were trying to find some way to allow a little bit of freedom but still retain power with the government. 
And during the period that the act was enforced, there was only one official newspaper, the London Gazette, which was published by the government. And then when the London Gazette went out of business, there were a whole bunch of little newspapers that showed up. And at that point, you suddenly have this whole chaos of people actually expressing their own opinions, not expressing the government's opinions. Now, they were so concerned that the Secretary of State had the power that they could issue a warrant, quote, for the purpose of searching for and seizing the author of a libel or the libelous papers themselves. And this was all seen as a necessary part of protecting the government from the people. However, in 1765, that was declared illegal in a case called Entick versus Carrington. And that was right in the middle of the emergence of somebody I want to talk about, John Wilkes. John Wilkes is an immortal because he stood for freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and the right of people to elect their own parliamentarians, not the parliament's right to impose parliamentarians on people. So what you had was a moment in time in the late 1760s. Remember, this is about a decade before the Declaration of Independence. So all of this is happening, all of it's being reported in the colonies, and the leadership who will ultimately go to Philadelphia and write the Declaration of Independence, they're all very aware of what's going on. In that period, the most famous codifier of English law is Sir William Blackstone. And Blackstone publishes commentaries on the laws of England, and they are the definitive work, which frankly even today are seen by lawyers as a landmark in codifying the law and creating this idea that the law exists and that the system operates within the law. And Blackstone comes down very firmly. He says, quote, The liberty of the press is indeed essential to the nature of a free state, but this consists in laying no prior restraints upon publications and not in freedom from censure for criminal matter when published. Every free man has an undoubted right to lay what sentiments he pleases before the public. To forbid this is to destroy the freedom of the press. But if he publishes what is improper, mischievous, or illegal, he must take the consequence of his own temerity. And here you have Jefferson's passion for freedom of the press and for the idea of freedom of speech, which ultimately becomes part of our Bill of Rights. So Blackstone is laying out a very firm statement. Think about all the debates we're currently having, and the people, particularly on the left, who want the right to censorship. They want the news media to be censored. They want politicians to be censored. They want people on the Internet and social media to be censored. And think about how exactly contrary that is to the principle that Blackstone is creating in the 1760s. I want to repeat part of what he said. The liberty of the press is indeed essential to the nature of a free state, but this consists in laying no prior restraints upon publications. Every free man has an undoubted right to lay what sentiment he pleases before the public. To forbid this is to destroy the freedom of the press. Now he goes on to say, look, you can say anything you want to, but if what you say is libelous or if what you say is profoundly false, there are consequences. You can be sued. People can come after you. So you have to be prepared to defend what you're willing to say. 
But you should not have a prior restraint. Nobody should step in and say, ah, you're not allowed to say this. Now, into this very chaotic environment where people are really wrestling with this emerging modern world, what are your rights, what's the government's rights, comes John Wilkes. John Wilkes is basically, by our standards, upper middle class. He was the second son of six children of Israel Wilkes, who was a malt distiller, born in Clerkenwell in 1725. He went off to boarding school. He mastered Latin and Greek by the age of 14. In 1744, he attended the University of Leiden, and that's at a time when Leiden was one of the great centerpieces of what we would think of as liberal learning. Wilkes came back home and had an arranged marriage to a bride some 10 years older than himself, Mary Mead, whose dowry from her wealthy widowed mother was the manor of Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire. A daughter, Mary, was born in 1750. After 10 years, he permanently separated from his wife, but retained the Aylesbury estate and agreed to pay his wife £200 a year, which is, by the way, a lot of money back then. So he obviously was doing pretty well financially. But he was bored. So Wilkes decides to get into politics. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1757, he's elected a member of parliament for Aylesbury. And he made his first speech in 1761 in support of William Pitt. William Pitt really matters. He was called the Great Commoner. He was the most impressive English prime minister of his age to be matched only by his son, Pitt the Younger, who fought the war with Napoleon. And Wilkes decides he's on the side of Pitt, who is basically a war hawk, somebody who believes in making Britain greater by winning wars overseas and by capturing territories. His first speech was not a particularly big deal. Horace Walpole commented, quote, His appearance as an orator had by no means conspired to make him more noticed. He spoke coldly and insipidly, though with impertinence. His manner was poor and his countenance horrid. So as you can see, Wilkes is not suddenly emerging on the scene as a great figure. He's just a backbench politician trying to make his way along. And at that time, he was not taken very seriously. However, what starts to change everything is the next year, when King George III asked his close friend, the Earl of Butte, to become Prime Minister. Now, a lot of people were very upset by that because they thought Butte was incompetent. And John Wilkes became Butte's leading critic in the House of Commons. Now, this is very tricky because, remember, this is a period before you have the Declaration of Independence, which asserts that your rights come from God. This is a period when people believe that your rights come from the king. So if you too clearly criticize the king, you're engaged in treason. And if you too clearly criticize the king's best friend, who's now the prime minister, that's pretty close to treason. And here you have Wilkes picking a fight, making his fame by taking on the king's close friend and prime minister, the Earl of Butte. In fact, in June of 1762, Wilkes establishes the North Britain, which is a newspaper that keeps attacking the king and his prime minister. Now think about this. Here's a guy who's going out of his way. He's not only making speeches attacking the prime minister, he's creating a newspaper to attack the prime minister. In the very first issue, Wilkes writes, quote, The liberty of the press is the birthright of a Briton, and is justly esteemed the firmest bulwark of the liberties of this country. I mean, Jefferson is basically later on essentially taking exactly Wilkes' line. And the whole concept of the Bill of Rights and the whole concept of your right to free speech and the right of a free press comes straight from Wilkes. Now, however, at the time, it was not seen as a very positive thing. In fact, Wilkes gets more and more extreme. In 1763, he writes in his newspaper, The king's speech at the opening of Parliament gave, quote, 
his sacred name to the most odious measures and the most unjustifiable public declarations from a throne ever renowned for truth, honor, and unsullied virtue. He added that the spirit of discord will never be extinguished but by the extinction of their power. Now, if you're the king, <laughs> if you're the king's prime minister, this guy's really beginning to make you mad. He's saying very aggressive things, using very strong language, and in effect, he is engaged in what would be called, if not treason, sedition, that is the undermining of the government. George Grenville, replacing Butte as prime minister, decides he's going to prosecute Wilkes for seditious libel. Wilkes writes back, quote, The government have sent the spirit of discord through the land, and I will prophesy that it will never be extinguished, but by the extinction of their power. A nation as sensible as the English will see that a spirit of concord when they are oppressed means a tame submission to injury, and that a spirit of liberty ought then to arise, and I am sure ever will, in proportion to the weight of the grievance they feel. Thirteen years before the Declaration of Independence, a clear statement. The government have sent the spirit of discord through the land. I mean, he is laying it right on the government. Something which is shocking and clearly verges on treason by the standard of that time. Well, Grenville's a serious man. So, on April 30th, 1763, John Wilkes and 49 publishers are arrested on a general warrant, a document which had no real crime, but just said, anybody we list in this document can be arrested. General warrants were very unpopular. Think of this as, in some ways, parallel to the Russian collusion, the Ukrainian collusion, I mean, all the junk we've been through. And as Wilkes said, look, these are clearly unconstitutional. You haven't specified a crime. You haven't specified we've done anything wrong. You can't just go around arresting people. At a court hearing, the Lord Chief Justice ruled that as a member of Parliament, Wilkes was protected by privilege from arrest on a charge of libel. In other words, what you said in the Parliament... In this case, they stretch it out to say what you said as a parliamentarian could not be attacked for libel. Now, that led to a movement proclaiming, quote, Wilkes and Liberty. So he's beginning to really be identified as the symbol of freedom, the symbol of a free press, and the symbol of legitimately standing up to the government, not being treasonous. Actually, during the spring of 1763, Wilkes, who's a very energetic guy, organizes 25 printers to bring suits against the government for illegal arrest and seizure of property. The printers, and later Wilkes, won their cases against the execution of the general warrant and were paid compensation by the government. Now, in our current period, this would be comparable to Facebook and others having to compensate the Post or having the New York Post or having to compensate. President Trump, or having to compensate Rush Limbaugh. I mean, he's taking on this notion that if you arrest us illegally, you owe us damages. Wilkes, having won the argument on that case, goes right back and attacks the government again. Samuel Martin, who supports the king, challenges Wilkes to a duel. After Wilkes called him, quote, the most treacherous, base, selfish, mean, abject, low-lived, and dirty fellow that ever wriggled himself into a secretaryship. You can see why Martin was kind of irritated. Nonetheless, there are consequences. 
On 16th November 1763, Wilkes is seriously wounded by Martin by a shot in the stomach, which is very painful, and he's lucky he didn't die. And then one week later, Parliament voted that a member's privilege from arrest did not extend to the writing and publishing of seditious libels. Clearly, they're about to arrest Wilkes, and he takes off, and his friends get him to Paris, out of reach of the government. Then he returns, and he's quiet until Parliament is dissolved in 1768, decides to stand for the Middlesex constituency. He had organized supporters. Remember, by now he is sort of the symbol of freedom, and now we're up to about eight years before the Declaration of Independence. People in America are reading about this. They're talking about this. They're trying to say, what does it mean? Which side are we on? In Middlesex, there's a 6,000-strong contingent of weavers who parade through the streets and forced every carriage to either show Wilkes's color, which is blue, or to chalk their vehicle with the slogan, Wilkes and Liberty. Wilkes triumphs by 1,292 votes to 827 and 807. That's the other two candidates. Then, after being elected, Wilkes is arrested and taken to King's Bench Prison. So now you have people looking at and say, wait a second, this guy won the election. He had a huge support. And for the next few weeks, the crowd began to assemble at St. George's Field, which is a large open space by the prison. On the 10th of May, 1768, a crowd of almost 15,000 arrived outside the prison. They chanted Wilkes and Liberty, No Liberty, No King, and Damn the King, Damn the Government, Damn the Justices. Well, think about it. This stuff is all directly aimed at the king and the concept of power coming from the king to the citizens and is an enormous threat to the system. The crowd of 15,000 scares the troops who are really afraid that they're going to try to break into the prison and rescue Wilkes. And so the troops open fire, killing seven people. Anger at that led to disturbances all over London. Now remember, this is a period leading up to what will become the Boston Massacre, what will become the Tea Party. Again, all of these things are, in fact, across the Atlantic. There are ties of thinking, ties of activity, people paying attention to each other, and a gradual emerging radicalism, radical in the sense that it does not accept that the king has universal power and does not accept that, that liberty doesn't matter. Wilkes is then found guilty of libel. He's sentenced to 22 months prison and a thousand pound fine. He's expelled from the House of Commons. But in February, March, and April, he's reelected by Middlesex three times. And on all three occasions, the decision was overturned by Parliament. In fact, in May, the House of Commons voted that Colonel Henry Luttrell, the defeated candidate of Middlesex, would be accepted as the parliamentary member. So now you have the spectacle. Here's the guy who's the government critic. He's the guy who has won four elections. And the politicians, the establishment, the swamp of that era, says, no, we don't care what the voters want. We're not going to tolerate him. Wilkes, having been banned from Parliament, joins a campaign for freedom of the press. And in February 1771, Parliament attempted to prevent several London newspapers from publishing reports of its debate. Wilkes challenges the decision. The government reacts by ordering the arrest of two of his printers. A large crowd soon surrounds Parliament, 
and afraid of what would happen, the government ordered the release of the two men and abandoned attempts to prevent the publication of reports of its debates. And so a couple of principles here are beginning to be established. Politicians don't debate in secret. The voters have the right to read the debates. And you can't just go and arrest people because they happen to be printers. Wilkes already been repudiated three times in Parliament in 1774. Now, this remember, this is all evolving. Two years now before we will create the Declaration of Independence. Wilkes is elected Lord Mayor of London. So every time the establishment crushes him, he bounces back bigger, more popular, with more support. And he's once again elected to represent Middlesex in the House of Commons. This time, the establishment caves and he's allowed to serve in Commons. Wilkes is a genuine radical for his generation. When he's in Commons, he campaigns for religious toleration, for parliamentary reform. He says, quote, that every free agent in this kingdom should, in my wish, be represented in Parliament, that the metropolis, which contains in itself a ninth part of the people, and the counties of Middlesex, York, and others, which so greatly abound with inhabitants, should receive an increase in their representation, that the mean and insignificant boroughs, so emphatically styled the rotten part of our Constitution, should be topped off, and the electors in them thrown into the counties, and the rich, populous trading towns, Birmingham, Manchester, Sheffield, Leeds, and others, be permitted to send deputies to the great council of the nation. You have to understand the structure of British politics in this period to realize how radical this is. The British Parliament had grown up in a medieval period and basically represented geographies, many of them rural, many of them with almost no people. At least one of them had no people at all in it. And the representative from that particular parliamentary seat was basically picked by the landowner who said, yeah, I want you there. And in fact, the most famous conservative intellectual of the late 18th century and the greatest critic of the very base of the French Revolution and its radical destruction of liberty was actually initially from what was called a rotten borough. And they were called rotten boroughs because they were totally disproportionate to their size. And very often they were controlled by the owner of the property in that period. What Wilkes is suggesting is an enormous shock to the system, which would transfer power from these rural boroughs there were very few people to these great metropolises, which represented a totally different world. They represented a world of commerce, a world of manufacturing. This, in fact, would not begin to occur in a big way until the 1830s and 40s, partially because the French Revolution, when it occurred, so deeply frightened the British aristocracy. It was so ruthless, it killed so many people. It was such a totalitarian system that it just stopped this kind of reform in its tracks. Without the French Revolution, probably Wilkes's model of representation would have occurred by 1810 or 1815. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And Wilkes was defining a really important key point. All of this, remember, just a year or two before the Declaration of Independence. Wilkes says, quote, The poorest peasant and day laborer has important rights respecting his personal liberty, that of his wife and children, his property, however inconsiderable, his wages, which are in many trades and manufactures regulated by the power of Parliament. Some share, therefore, in the power of making those laws which deeply interest them. Without a true representation of the commons, our Constitution is essentially defective. 
So he's really speaking for every working person having the right to have representation, to vote, have their vote counted. In that era, this was a hugely radical position. As you might guess, when the Americans finally rebelled, Wilkes was on their side. Again, think about how controversial and how divisive this must have been in the British governing class. Wilkes says, quote, I hold Magna Carta to be in full force in America. In Parliament, Wilkes urged conciliation rather than coercion, denounced the American war as bloody, expensive, and above all futile, telling the House of Commons men are not converted by the force of the bayonet at the breast. So he is basically on the side of the Americans who are critiquing the system. And the reference to Magna Carta is important because of its cultural implications for Great Britain. There's a copy of the Magna Carta in the U.S. Capitol. Signed in 1215, it is a statement basically that the king can have extra money, but he has to respect the power of the nobles. Originally, it doesn't relate to everyday people, it related to the nobles. But it was establishing this notion that the king was not absolute, the king did not have total authority, that in fact he had to negotiate, he had to share his power. It occurred because King John was a very weak king, deeply overextended, deeply in debt, desperate for the money. So he caved after he had agreed to it, he tried to get out of it. But it became the benchmark of the concept that the king must come to the parliament and particularly come to the House of Commons to get money. And therefore, the government, to some extent, was obligated to normal people, the people from whom it wants to get money. And that grew into a bigger and bigger statement, more and more power moved to the commons and away from the king. By saying the Magna Carta is in full force in America, Wilkes is saying all the rights of an English citizen apply to the colonist. Well, this was not at all London's view of things. London thought of the colonies as places to be exploited on behalf of Great Britain, not places that Great Britain had to govern as part of Britain. And in fact, you can write a terrific alternative history in which they cleverly give the Americans the right to vote for parliamentary representation. And as a result, America remains loyal to Britain, and you have a totally different world. Wilkes goes so far as to move to repeal the Declaratory Act of 1776. This was a key complaint of the colonists. It was one of the things that came out of defeating the French in the Seven Years' War, or what the Americans called the French and Indian War. He was trying to say, let's get rid of things that really make the Americans angry. He only gets 10 votes because the fact is the British political system is not prepared to conciliate the Americans. They want to crush the Americans. Finally, there's a peace commission in 1778 which leads him to urge recognition of the American colonists. The peace commission was an effort, the last big effort, to find some way out of this war that seemed to continue to go on. The Americans were gradually winning. And Wilkes pointed out, quote, a series of four years' disgraces and defeats are surely sufficient to convince us of the absolute impossibility of conquering America by force, and I fear the gentle means of persuasion have equally failed. So here he is saying in 1778, this is over. We're not going to be able to defeat the Americans. We need to give them their freedom. And by the way, Pitt the Elder, the great commoner, had also come to the same view and also believed that 
it was impossible to militarily defeat the Americans. Finally, after all of these years of standing decisively, being a very bold reformer, being a half century ahead of the way things would evolve, in the 1790 general election, he's defeated for re-election, and he retires from politics. Now, I thought in the current situation we're in, that Wilkes was a particularly useful person to look at. Because this whole notion that we're going to say to a former president, now a private citizen, and I saw a reference today to citizen Trump, which I think is a very important concept. If you think citizen and you say to yourself, by what right do Washington politicians tell the American people that a citizen who had gotten over 74 million votes, that that citizen cannot run for office, that the American people do not have the right to pick who they want to send into office. That, it seems to me, is a return to the kind of parliament that Wilkes was, in fact, rebelling against. The spirit of Wilkes and the fight that Wilkes was involved in dramatically impacted the Americans, led to a deep passion for freedom of the press, led to a deep belief in free speech, and led to a deep belief that power came from the people, not from the king, and that our rights, in fact, come to us from God, and that we therefore have the right to stand up and refuse to allow the government to define for us what we are allowed to think. I think Wilkes is one of those remarkable people who have an impact out of all proportion to what you would have expected at the beginning of their life. And he certainly had a big impact on the Americans. And as a result, people like Jefferson drew from Wilkes's views a very, very deep commitment to a level of restricting the government. Remember, the Constitution is actually designed to limit the government, not to strengthen it. The Bill of Rights is designed to limit the government, not to strengthen it. The whole goal was, how do we have a system strong enough that we can survive in a dangerous world with countries like France and Britain and Spain that may want to devour us, but at the same time, restrict that government so that its power, which is important to protect us from foreign danger, cannot be used to eliminate our own freedoms. That's the central question the Founding Fathers are working on, and they believed that they were creating a system in which freedom would always be protected. I think right now we're seeing the gravest threat to that system in the 225-year history of the United States. And I think it's useful to go back and look at Wilkes, understand what he was fighting for, understanding the scale of corruption and the scale of self-serving police power that was being used to try to crush him, and recognize that the struggle for liberty, the struggle for freedom, the struggle for citizenship is unending, and that we are once again in a period where we have an obligation to stand firm for every person's rights, to stand firm for free speech, to stand firm for government respecting the citizenry. And I can't think of any better example. I tweeted over the weekend in honor of Ronald Reagan's 110th birthday that our new cry should be, Speaker Pelosi, tear down this wall, in memory of Ronald Reagan saying in Berlin, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Reagan was referring to the wall in Berlin, which was designed to keep East Germans from fleeing to the West. The very notion 
that we would have barbed wire around the U.S. Capitol to protect our capital from Americans strikes me as exactly wrong. We have plenty of FBI capability, plenty of police capability. We don't have to physically separate the politicians behind a protective barrier. It's doubly ironic because the very people who most want the wall around the Capitol are the people who most want to tear down the wall between the United States and Mexico. I think that Wilkes would have thoroughly understood this dilemma. He would have totally been in favor of tearing down the wall, and he would have found it amazing that the American people are being told by their elected officials that they are so unworthy of trust that the elected officials have to protect themselves from the people of the United States. So I think there's a lot to learn from Wilkes, and I think this particular time is a time when we have a lot to learn to think profoundly about how we are going to protect freedom and we are going to protect liberty and we are going to refuse to allow either big government or mobs on the left who might be tempted to try to crush freedom because I think that it's essential to recognize that every generation has to be militant and every generation has to be prepared to do what it takes in order to preserve its freedoms. And this is a really, really important question and one that I hope will be a significant part of our debates in the next few years. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.